Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. In this episode, director Antonio Campos is in conversation with Anna Bogatskaya, and they're talking about his latest film, The Devil All the Time, which is available to watch on Netflix. Antonio and Anna discuss dialect coaching, adapting novels, portraying the passage of time, and the acting genius of Robert Pattinson. We hope you enjoy the podcast. But um, Antonio, to kick off our chat, um, I've got a ton of questions, but I want to start at the beginning. And it's kind of when did you first come across the work of Donald Ray Pollock and Devil the Time, the book? I I first um, I first read Don Pollock's book when uh, this was the first thing I ever read by him, Devil, Devil All the Time. He had had he has a book of short stories called Knock 'em mm-hmm. Stiff. That was the first thing he wrote. So Randy Poster, who people know as a music supervisor uh, and is the producer of the film, he and I were working together on, I, I think we were working together on Christine or I might've been producing James White. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he read the book and he uh, gave it to me and said, if you know, if you like this, I'd like to try and produce it for you. And I read it right away and I loved it. And I, and, um, I just knew I wanted to do it with my brother. And, um, and that was the beginning of it. That was about... Mm-hmm seven or eight years ago. And can you talk a little bit about that adaptation process and co-writing with your brother? It was, uh, it, so we didn't get started on it right away. It was a mm-hmm. sort of like, read the book, we loved the book, decided we wanted mm-hmm. to do it. And there was a whole period of trying to option the book, getting all the deals done and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So it took a while and I was started to, I was finishing, James doing James White. I, I, I think I started to Christine um, and um, and so didn't really get started on the writing until about 2015. Basically, Paulo, my brother and I um, tried to try and figure out, well, what is, you know, you do you do a couple things when you're trying to adapt, like you figure out um, what are your favorite parts, like kind of just do mm-hmm. this exercise of like things that you love about the book and try and identify the key themes to the book. Um, and um, key arcs, and then um, and then and then started to get into sort of how would uh, a film of this book look, and you know um, it's a it's a it's a book that's told kind of it bounces from one character to another. Um, at a certain point, like in the beginning, it's very much Willard for a long period mm-hmm. of time, and then uh, and you get the sense of like Roy and Theo. Um, and Helen, but that story wraps up pretty quickly because then they go, they go on the run. They, they survive mm-hmm. and they go on for a while. And then Carl and Sandy pop up and Bodecker. Um, and then it kind of pinballs um, between all the narratives. But in terms of the telling the film, we, we had to, what we identified as the spine was the Arvin Willard storyline. And then everything else was kind of an offshoot of that. And it kind mm-hmm. of all had to fold into each other by the end. So once we identified this kind of spine and then what the essence of every other story that in the book that we loved was, um, then we sort of set about writing it. And then, and then the first draft was enormous. Like it was, it was just unwieldy and long. And then, um, and then we just kind of honed it in, it tightened it up and, and got it to a place that we felt um, that, uh, you know, was a movie. And also then uh, then the other aspect, the 
final phase of the whole writing process was the narration and figuring out mm -hmm. the narration, bring that in. Now, um, that's, that's a really good segue to my next question because the film is narrated by Pollock himself. And yeah. I wanted to ask you kind of about his involvement because there, it's a very deliberate choice to give the author of the novel that you're adapting the overall omnipresent role of the narrator who isn't mm -hmm. really a character in the story but is a character in the film. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that choice and the way that you worked with Don on, on fitting his voice into already a really big ensemble cast? Um, when, we, when we decided early on that we wanted a narrator, there was only mm. one person thought of, which was uh, Don. We just, uh, we had, I had, Don doesn't do a lot of audio recording. Mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't do any of his audio books. So I only really heard his voice when I met him. And then right away, I knew that his voice was something that, um, that, that was very powerful and mm -hmm. communicated a very specific place. And he had a very specific kind of humor. And, and so um, we started to write the narration with his voice in mind and just hope that he would say yes, because there was nobody else that we had in our mind to do it. Like, it wasn't like Sam Elliott was the second choice, you know, like there was no other voice that could do that. I mean, Don Pollock is from Knockham Stiff, Ohio, mm -hmm. this tiny little hollow. Don Pollock has lived in Chillicothe, which is essentially Mead in the movie, mm -hmm. in the book. And he worked in a paper mill until he was about 50 years old. And then he started to write. So there's, he's got so much history and he, he writes from such a, um, you know, he writes what he knows. He knows this world uh, of Knockham Stiff and, and, and Southern Ohio. So um, when we started to incorporate the narrator into the story, um, it, it was very natural. It didn't feel like it didn't, it wasn't like, a, it wasn't never clunky. We knew we always wanted to use a narrator. We just didn't write the first draft with the mm -hmm. narrator in. We just had to see where we needed it. Um, so it very fluidly kind of worked its way in the script. It was just as we started to write it, this character of the narrator came, came out. I mean, the, the mm -hmm. sense of humor that he had and the perspective he had on these people and who he felt more connected to than others mm -hmm. came, came across. And it really was the reflection of us and how we felt. And, um, and so that just happened very organically. And then, you know, Don was very generous with his time. I, I mean, he... He had read the script and given his thoughts on the script and then recorded the voiceover before we started shooting so that I had it for the assembly. Mm -hmm. uh, but then as Sophia, my wife, and I were editing, um, he, he, he would just, I, would, I, I would email him and be like, Don, could you record this line? And this is, this is roughly the action of the scene that mm -hmm. you're recording it for. And so he would record it right away, a couple different versions, and he might record an alt take and he might do something really weird and out there. Um, and then from there, maybe we'd come back and be like, oh, we'll do this, this and that. Um, so it was a very kind of like, it was just like working with an actor who, mm -hmm. you know, just like working with an actor who, who was really good at improvising and had a really good handle on the character and the world. Mm -hmm. And um, you bring up a couple of points that I wanted to pick you up on. And one of them is kind of the sense of place and how it relates to the voice. And you've got in Devil All the Time, this cast of amazing actors that are from all around the world. So mm -hmm. how did you work with them? And kind of what was your process in getting them to sound like they're all from the same place to, and to belong to this world of Knockham Stiff and, and me? 
Um, we used a, a dialect coach mm. named Rick Lipton, who's based out of um, England, who came to us through Tom. He's Tom's guy. And right. um, he essentially, he and I start, we, we discussed a lot of what the sound of each place was. He's from mm -hmm. Ohio, so he has familiarity with that. I had a lot of reference audio that I had been collecting. Don himself had recorded dialogue, uh, and then Don had gotten people from Southern Ohio to record other dialogue as well. And mm -hmm. so we had a little library of Ohio, and then Don had gotten people from West Virginia. So we had a West Virginia library. And then and then I also was referencing a, a movie called Holy Ghost People, a documentary from the 60s mm -hmm. that's at, in, in, in Appalachia, in West Virginia, in a tiny church. Um, um, and uh, a lot of the testimonials in there were references for West Virginian accents. Mm -hmm. So we found the sort of like, we found our, our two worlds and the sound of those worlds and Rick worked to try to create unity between all the actors that were from there. The one... Uh, actor and character that was really from another, the two actors actually that were from other places outside, Knockham Stiff, Mead, and Cole Creek, were Jason Clark, mm -hmm. who played Carl, who came from Columbus, um, and then Rob Pattinson, who mm -hmm. came from Tennessee. And those two guys did not really work with Rick. They were doing their own process. I think, I think Jason was working with his coach that he likes to work with. And then mm -hmm. Rob was working with anybody. Rob, Rob and I had a couple of conversations and Rob just has his process and he mm -hmm. and I were talking about references and, but he really was very, uh, he would always like come up with a reason to not like talk to the dialogue coach. It was always like very hard to schedule a meeting. He wasn't getting back to him. And we were like, what's going on? Like, what's, what's up with Rob? And then he just was very, like, very, just kind of very close to the vest with his process. So mm -hmm. he didn't sort of unveil the accent um, until the day of. And uh, it was really, it was just kind of like I, I saw the character for the first time on set. Were, were you worried about that process? No. no I, I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I have a lot of trust in my actors. And I always, mm -hmm. I, I also believe in the process so much that, like, I, you obviously you're like, well, this is this, you know, this could go one of two ways. Mm -hmm. but, but at the same time, like I know Rob and um and once he once he once he sort of like opened sort of like here it is, mm -hmm. there was nothing precious about it. It was just we were talking and and, and figuring it out on the day mm -hmm. and sculpting it some more as we went. And mm -hmm. but but um no, I don't get worried about those things because at a certain point you realize um if you're if you if 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 you're working with enough smart people, if the actor's uh, sensitive and smart, and and you also have trust in the whole process, which is involves post production, mm -hmm. you know, if an accent isn't exactly what you want it to be, there's a very there's a long process ahead of you where you can kind of still keep massaging it and working it. You mm -hmm. know, so there's you know as long as the performance is good and, and that's all that matters. And with Rob, when he came with that accent, I was just very excited because he just made such a strong choice. And I was really excited that he, he had gone there. And, um, and I immediately felt like a very memorable sound mm. that, that may, not have, may not be what people think West Virginia sounds or t Tennessee sounds like, mm -hmm. but conveys such a specific feeling, you know? Um, yes. And so that's what I reacted to. And you, you can instantly feel that he is coming from somewhere else and the charm that comes with sounding yes, and looking exactly. like you're from somewhere else. Yeah, um, exactly. And there's, 
I was wondering kind of how how did you work with both your performers and your and your team and um you you know your your wife Sophia the editor on kind of striking that balance between all of the different stories and the threads that you were interweaving together. Um, well, um, in terms of the actors, the one thing I can speak to is that there, there was, um, with, uh, I had Riley and Sebastian and I had Bill and I had Tom in a couple weeks before production. And, um, we were able to do a little bit of a read through and it was mm -hmm. good because those, those characters are all connected in a way. So Riley and Sebastian had to have a kind of a, 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 a brother sister dynamic. Mm -hmm. And, and even though Tom and Bill are not in the scene together, Arvin is a character that, that lived with this guy. So Tom has to have some history with, with that character. So, mm -hmm. um, what we were able to do in, in that read through was Riley and Sebastian did a lot of like uh, theater exercises to kind of like just get into sort of a flow with one another and get playful and kind of just kind of laugh. And then with Bill and Tom, I had Tom read the scenes of young Arvin with mm -hmm. Bill. Mm -hmm. So the scenes that a nine year old actor was playing, Tom did. So all automatically that kind of, even though, he's never in a scene with Bill, he has this history, like he has the experience, the memory of mm. doing these scenes that can inform later when he's thinking back on that. Like when I'm, if I ever, ever go to, you know, Tom, like, hey man, I need to feel the history in your mm -hmm. eyes. Like I need to feel the past. He knew he could pull from that or he go wherever he needs to go. But in terms of like the creating the world and working with my mm. crew, it was, it was just, um, it was just a very in-depth process. We really kind of, we really, really created um, elaborate uh, specific boards for every location, every mm -hmm. um, every character. We had a very specific um, map of the, the color palette and how it progressed from sort of Andrew Wyeth painting into a, a William Eggleston photograph. And that was kind of the trajectory that we were looking at. And then sort of in the mm -hmm. middle 50s, we were looking at Kodachrome, a lot of Kodachrome imagery. Um, from a book called Modern Color. And um, and then we sort of had it on the wall and made sure that all of it felt close, like uh, connected. Mm -hmm. Like We felt like Knock'em Stiff was a place. Well, West Virginia felt a little different and that felt like one thing and, you know, cause you don't have like a big town to work with. So all the locations that we are spending a lot of time in need to feel um, like they need to feel connected to whatever other spaces we're going to in that world. And um, that's that's a really interesting point, kind of about building that sense of space. But also, as you go through different time periods in those same spaces, what were um, could you elaborate a bit more about the things that were most important in making sure that for the audience you get the real sense of it's a different time in Nakamstev, it's a different time mm -hmm. here that we're perhaps seeing characters at different points in their lives. Kind of what were the most um, the color palette aspect that you just touched on was so yeah. interesting. What else were you using to, um, to create that sense of, um, of time and space? Um, I mean, there's very simple things like um, the house we treat, the, the house is treated, it, it looks very different the first time you see it mm. when they visit it in the forties to 
um, when they see it, when, when, when we see it again 10 years later in 57. Um, uh, so that was just sort of a superficial kind of like, that's what that looked like on the outside. Mm. So that, that, conveyed a, that conveyed that they put love into the house, um, painted it and, and fixed up some, some aspects of it. Um, and then in terms of, you know, it was just very, this wasn't a huge budget. So we had to be mm. very kind of very calculated and precise about how we used cars. And so it was just about figuring out what, um, what the world of 45 felt like versus the world of 57 versus the world of 65. Mm. What we, what we came to was that nothing ever felt like that year, you know, like for the most part, everyone's car is a few years older, if not 10 years older. Um, you know, everything is just a, so like 65 doesn't really feel like 65 it feels more like 63. Mm -hmm. And then you still have stuff from the fifties kind of in there. So we were just thinking in terms of that, I mean, the, the key markers of time were, were cars, wardrobe, color palette, and then the final one mm -hmm. was music. Music was, this, this, not the score, but the soundtrack was telling mm -hmm. us very clearly that we were not in the 40s. So, you know, in the beginning of this, this sort of like oozy, oozy um, dream track, for instance, or like the track that mm -hmm. plays over uh, Bodecker and the car and the fifties. Um, and then you get into these like poppy country sounds, um, that take over the soundtrack later on. So mm -hmm. very like effortlessly that gives you a very different feel and brings you into a, a specific time. And, um, I was wondering as well, kind of, um, to thinking a little bit about your earlier films as well and how Devil of the Time fits into them. And correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things that I've, um, that I thought of when I was watching this is that a lot of your characters are always presenting two versions of themselves. They have very troubled interior lives and struggle with communicating that to people around them or to their exterior. Yeah. Um, yeah. world. So I was wondering kind of about what is it about that interior darkness that attracts you um, in, in these types of stories? It's really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, I've always been interested in characters that appear one way and have more complicated um, interior life. That's why I was so drawn to George Simonon's books, which really inspired Simon Killer. Mm -hmm. um, I just I'm always interested in going to the minds of complicated people and mm -hmm. I'm interested in uh, getting into that their mindset and trying to dig and see if I find um, humanity in there on some mm -hmm. of these in some of these characters um, and then and sometimes you, you find that humanity that's still there that's just been um shrouded and all this other stuff or um, or you don't find it and um but it's that that journey of looking for it that that i've always been drawn to um and i and i, I and i just like i like the experience of in books and movies spending time with characters um that um that that may not seem like the usual sort of main principal characters like they don't mm. seem like 
they don't they don't fit in the hero the anti-hero kind of mode there's kind of these they might be side characters in other stories um you know christine is definitely someone that could have been a side character in another mm-hmm. story um and in the case of this it's like you know in by going off in this small these small sort of narrative these other narratives with carl and sandy or mm-hmm. roy and theo or um you know you're 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 making the side characters the main character for a piece of the story you know and um and they were literally they were literally in the periphery of the the main uh story main character's journey and then they become the the they they they, they then they start driving the narrative um so so yeah there's like there's there's some connection between all of that mm. um but it is it's a question that I get asked a lot and I kind of like that's really it's just only sort of like this kind of it's you know it's hard sometimes because you don't really you get through with the movie and then you look back and you're like oh wow there's a lot of things that I was interested in this movie that had to do with other things I was interested in other movies that I did yeah. but you don't you're not thinking about that as you're doing it mm. um it's just weird what you're getting drawn to and um, there's there's something as well that was interesting to me is that I felt like there was quite a lot of restraint in this film. Like there's there's a lot of darkness, there's a lot of violence, um, but there's very specific choices I think by your part. And correct me if I'm wrong of what to show on screen when I'm thinking particularly kind of of the of some of the the more grotesque and the most violent acts that um, some of the characters do. So what? what was kind of your decision-making process and deciding what to put on camera? Kind of what to zero in on? Well, there's, you know, there's, there are certain things that you, um, you as a filmmaker may or may not want to see. Mm. Um, and that drives some of the decision-making. Um, I tend to uh, like the, I, I, I tend to, um, trust that the imagination can do a lot more um, mm. um, than, than, than what you can show. And, um, and, um, and so that was kind of what was sort of, and I also just don't like to glorify violence so mm. much. So I kind of like present it very matter of fact. I, don't, I think that if you even sort of look at the way that the two girls die in after school or the way that um, um, Christine Christine's suicide plays out or the way that the, the guy gets stabbed in the center. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a kind of matter of fact, uh, yes. matter of factness in the way that I shoot those things. Um, and, and I, so it's interesting to me because this, this, this discussion about the violence in the movie, mm. I think is a very interesting one because I, I've been asked it a lot. Like it's a very violent movie. It's very violent. And I think, well, yeah, I guess it is. But also if you, if you take the sort of body count in this movie mm-hmm. versus the body count of a of any sort of action movie that is consumed without any sort of mm-hmm. like without batting an eye, it's very low. I think that the reason why this movie feels so violent is because you're killing all these characters that you're getting to know, and and they're kind of, they kind of die unceremoniously, and yeah. you're forced to watch them die and then spend a moment with them after they die. So. To me, it's like, well, yeah, if you feel the violence in this movie, you should feel the violence. Like, why, why wouldn't you feel, they, they're dead mm-hmm. and they died and you spend time with them. So you should feel them there and then not there. And, um, 
and it's not going to be so fun sometimes and that's okay. But like, um, there's a, there, you know, it should be, it should be more shocking than thrilling. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it should have a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a, a little bit more of a shock that like, Whoa, I didn't see that coming. Wow. That that's pretty upsetting for a moment or whatever. Mm. But I, 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 I think that, um, the, um, the, the, but that if you look at the movie very closely, the, the violence is very, very precise, very quick, and sometimes not even on camera. Yes. And so I, 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 I ultimately like would love people to go back and look at that more closely and understand mm-hmm. why you, you perceived it the way you did and, um, and then sort of negotiate with yourself whether or not that's a good mm. thing or a bad thing. It actually, you bring up such interesting things. And one of the things that it seemed to me is actually restrained as opposed to very um, graphic. And yeah. I think one of the interesting characters, one of the interesting characters for me was the relationship between Carl and Sandy, the, the killers of the film, and yeah. how very little you show of their actual murders. And one of the yeah. scenes that I revisited when um, I was preparing for this conversation is actually the scene where we see their um, rampage when yeah. um when kind of Bo discovers all of these negatives and stuff it's all yeah. inverted visually yeah. um so i wanted to you know ask you kind of about the slow reveal of their of the extent of their cruelty to others mm-hmm. because i think that there's is kind of one of the the side narratives that goes to the film that we get glimpses of throughout mm-hmm. the whole narrative we don't get to spend that much time with them but they're mm-hmm. always there circling around. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to kind of ask you about how, how you balance their story in, in all of these other ones. Well, uh, first we, we, we decided to place ourselves more in um, Sandy's perspective mm-hmm. and sort of the drive of the story being sort of like the first time they meet, the sort of the beginning of their, their journey as serial killers the sense that Sandy is not so on board, but also kind of taken in by the thing. So you mm-hmm. understand that. And then when we come back, we catch up that with Sandy and we sort of see her just in a toxic relationship that she can't quite get out of. Um, and, um, and, and through, and, and using the photo, like the photographs were an element that I really loved in the, in the book because I, I knew that visually I could do so much with them mm. and that I could, you know, the book has um, a, a few, maybe more than a few um, guys that they pick up and sometimes you're with them for like a paragraph, sometimes it's a few pages, but um, you're seeing their sort of their process. Don is very, very good at like making you think you saw something that you didn't. He, he does, he's not super graphic, but you just get enough that you're like, yeah. and so we kind of carried that into the movie and the sense was like, Sandy enjoys an aspect of what they do. And mm-hmm. Sandy kind of there, does enjoy the sort of the, the, um, the playfulness in meeting these guys and, and, and the sense of control that she has and, and, and being the center of these photographs and, and, mm-hmm. um, and the object of desire in them, but uh, but um, but we but, but we wanted to suggest that there was something more complicated in Sandy, and 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 it's only when you see the sort of photographs and the breadth of their work 
do you realize how complicit she was and how playful she was? And it's the, the dynamic that, that what you thought about Sandy is kind of complicated by mm-hmm. that sort of montage of imagery. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was for, for, for us, it's kind of like you, even though they're, they're not the, you're not spending a great deal of time with them. Those scenes are so, so um, they, they, they say so much about their dynamic and they say so much about their, about their, um, about their killing, about their process. Mm. Um, and then the final, the final sort of reveal through Bodecker of like all the stuff that they've done mm-hmm. and kind of the, the kind of um, game they play with these characters that come across in the photo, I think tells a sort of, tells the, the um, gives you a, a better sense of what the actual truth is. Mm. And um, before um, I open up to questions, so if I'm the, anybody who's listening here uh, has questions you want to ask, pop them into the chat box now. Um, I wanted to ask you kind of about one of the, one of the themes that really stuck out to me throughout the whole film is kind of this idea of the trauma and uh, of intergenerational trauma and how things that our parents or our family um, do or grapple with will get passed down to sons, daughters, or are kind of seeped almost into the ground, into these places. Uh, one of the most affecting scenes for me was when Arvin tries to visit his parents' old, how- old house. Um, and when he goes back to reconcile with the memory of his father um, to the, in, in the woods. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how you approach these, these very vast themes and how they interweave as well with the ideas and themes of faith? Um, well, the, the, from the beginning, um, Willard's trauma is, is linked to his faith in a way. So, Mm -hmm. um, the moment that he kills the crucified Marine, um, um, his idea of faith, um, is polluted in a way or, 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 or reframed. And all of a sudden his relationship with the cross um, becomes less of a relationship with Jesus and more of a relationship with this guy. Mm-hmm. And it has, it takes a t- tangible earthly quality. So when he's praying to the cross and the clearing, um, he's not thinking of Jesus. He's thinking, he's thinking of Miller Jones. So then all of a sudden it takes a, religion becomes more earthly in a way, or I don't know, it becomes, it, it, it gets more complicated because he's not, there's not these, it's, it's, there's something tangible. It's like, wow, this is real. People suffer, mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. people do horrible things. Um, and I've seen it and I've been part of it. And so then, but he doesn't talk about it. So the way that, is, and which then leads to sort of his, his delusional act and his madness that, that ends that section. Um, and so what we wanted is that Arvin inherits his father's relationship with religion, mm-hmm. which is so um, tied up with his relationship with violence and um, the cruelty uh, that people are capable of. And so that's what Arvin inherits. And then that's what Arvin's grappling with. Mm-hmm. Um, and also Arvin's grappling with the fact that like, the, the most, the, 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 the time that his father got closest to him was when he beat the shit out of these guys in front of him. So 
There's like, it's just everything that's, everything that Arvin inherits from his father, uh, the good and the bad is all, all kind of um, confused and, 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 um, you know, it's just like, it's, 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 it's like, a, like a, like a, a yarn, a ball of yarn. That's all just kind of knotted up. Mm. Um, it's hard to take apart. Um, and so, so we were exploring that with him and, and then we with, with Lenora to a certain extent, we were exploring sort of what she, what she inherits from her parents, even though she didn't really know them, but, mm-hmm. but there's something that kind of gets carried on through Emma and, and what she knows about her mother that she, she admires. And also that she, she knows that her father might've done something to her mother, but she's decided to go the very Christian route and, and, and forgive him. And mm-hmm. so then you have her, her experience of Christianity and what she's inherited and how she's processing it. And then you have Arvin and what he's inherited and what he's processing. And the scene that kind of really speaks to, to both, uh, to, to that and to what both of them are experiencing and how they, how they are dealing with their trauma is the scene by the graveyard after Arvin's uh, gotten into the fight with the bullies mm-hmm. and you're hearing both of their perspectives and, and where Arvin stands with his past and where she stands with it. Um, and then ultimately, you know, she never gets to really reconcile with her trauma because her life is, um, she kind of falls victim in the same way that her mother fell victim to someone um, delusional and manipulative and um, a different way. Tea Garden and, and, and Roy are different characters, um, but they're both men of faith. And, um, and then Arvin, by the end of the movie, the question is whether or not he actually has um, put, to, put to rest these things that he's been wrestling with and now can move on um, into a healthier uh, life or not. Um, I'm going to ask some questions now that are coming in through the chat from the members. So one of the questions is, did you get any pushback during development on using, or as you brought it into production on using so much voiceover? Um, no, I didn't get Great, succinct answer. Love it. Um, One of the things as well is how do you find moving between directing for a series and for and directing a film? It's it's a really different muscle. Like um, it's also very different to direct a pilot than to direct episodic TV. Um, And then and then to also right now I'm developing a show uh, Mm -hmm. that I want that I'm going to direct. So they're all they're all different things. Episodic TV, you're coming in and you're inheriting a grammar, an established grammar, um, and you're you have to learn that grammar. And then there's always an opportunity in any episode of TV you do to to add on to that, but you can't stray away from it too much because you know you're very much there to do a job, and mm-hmm. you have to. Part of your job is to to learn the language of the show and then to 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 um, execute it and make it fit within a bigger narrative. Um, and then as a pilot director, your job is to really set the tone, create the world, but do that in, you know, with your showrunner, the guy who, or, 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 or person who's invented this world. And so you're there to, you know, you, you've been hired because you guys have similar visions um, and uh, 
and you know they recognize what you bring to this story and you recognize what you can do in it mm-hmm. so there you're you have a lot more control and you and you're establishing so much more of the universe that then you know episodic directors will have to uh follow but you're still you know you're still working with someone and, and then also answering to a studio and, and a network and all that stuff mm-hmm. and then in terms of you know developing your own show that's very much like the way that it feels right now it feels like writing a very long movie and the benefit that i've had by doing tv is that i understand movie time versus tv time so mm-hmm. 10 minutes of a show is not equal to 10 minutes of a movie and that was something that i i learned from doing it like i didn't know that even though you should re- kind of recognize it but i didn't didn't know what that actually meant until like i shot a tv show i got in the mm-hmm. other room and i was like wow this is so different than an hour of a movie this is mm-hmm. like this this hour is 10 minutes of a movie and how do you mm-hmm. travel that you know and um there's another question as well uh was this film shot on film and could you talk a little bit more about um your collaboration with your cinematographer Lowell Corley yeah uh who's british yeah um a great cinematographer Lowell Corley um so we did shoot on 35 millimeter. Mm-hmm. uh it is not um you know in, in general it's not very common to shoot 35 millimeter anymore um but we had figured out a way of making it work and, and um, you know, Netflix was very supportive creatively as long as we could make it work financially. And, and, mm-hmm. and we worked really hard to do that and, uh, and made concessions to do that. And it was just so important to us to shoot 35 millimeter because 35 just feels like the, like it feels, it, it transports you to another time, you know, mm-hmm. really quickly. So in my mind, I, I, it felt like, when we were making the case for it was look it's going to help every aspect of the movie and it's going to save money because you know it's gonna it's gonna help production design it's gonna allow us to do like like even if if you do less art direction but you have just a few key pieces of you know a few key elements in the frame Mm -hmm. if you're shooting 35 and you have a person in just like a good piece of wardrobe with the right hair, all, mm-hmm. automatically you're transported to the 40s or the 50s or 60s. So um, film in that way was helping us. It was like, it was kind of offsetting so we could sort of save some money on art direction mm-hmm. or costume design. Um, and and the film kind of do so much of the work of, you know, transporting you. Um, and then on top of that, it's just, there's a kind of softness um, that film adds. And so for such a sort of gritty, hard story, we wanted to embrace the beauty of 35 to ha- kind mm-hmm. of help you to settle you in to cushion this experience in a way that made it more um, digestible. And, um, and I think that the, the, the way that we shot it and the way that we s- are really celebrating the cinematic quality of it makes the experience, even though it can be really tough and harrowing at times, um, more you know you're you're it settles you in allows you to kind of just keep going through the journey and and doesn't make you feel so dirty at the very end of it in a way um so that was yeah that was a lot and and every reference we had you know the other the mm-hmm. point I was made was like every reference I had and that Lowell had for this movie was either a, a, a film shot in 35 a painting or a picture that was on film you know on cellular mm-hmm. so that was there's a lot of reasons why we shot it, and I think it was ultimately the right thing to do. 
Mm -hmm. And uh, one more question on the subject of cinematography is the shooting 35 affect the shooting ratio? Yeah, probably for sure. Um, I can't tell you exactly what the shooting ratio was, but mm -hmm. I, I should know that, in, that um, by heart. But it, it definitely, I mean, we definitely shot less because of film, mm -hmm. um, which is what I kind of like about film is that there's not so much of the um, just keep shooting, shooting, shooting. Um, let's like go again, go again, go mm -hmm, again. We mm -hmm. did some of that. We had to be very, very, very. Um, some actors just really need that, you know. Mm -hmm. Some actors really need the. They need to work themselves up in into it, and they can't do it in in between takes. They need to be mm -hmm. doing it in, in the middle. So they're going to want to go again. Can we just go again? Can we just go again? And uh, and if they need that, then you do it. Um, but you don't do it all the time. Um, so I I tend to even shoot my um, the stuff that I've shot, I, I've shot everything except after school and this on 35 millimeter on, on mm -hmm. uh, the Alexa. And even when I shoot in the Alexa, I try to be economic with how much mm -hmm. I shoot. Um, but um, you always let go of it a little bit and you just kind of indulge in the, the endless um, hard drive space. And uh, there's another question here, which is a bit more on the themes of religion, the theme of religion. So it's very important throughout the film and especially the ills that come from it. Did you find it difficult to deal with? And what was your aim in relation to this as the director? Um, I didn't find it difficult to deal with. Um, I, did, um, I, I did know that it would rub certain people the wrong way, but mm -hmm. I always felt... I always felt like we weren't, we were, we were, we were looking at a very specific kind of believer. The film's mm -hmm. about believers in a lot of ways and, 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 and um, looking closely at them, but it's, it's about a very specific kind, which is the fanatic extreme fundamentalists. And so I, I always felt like if you had a healthy relationship with religion, um, you'd recognize that the film has characters like Emma um, you know, uh, that have healthy relations with religion, like the first preacher, the reverend that they, that you first meet in the church, mm -hmm. or even recognize the acts of kindness that would sort of fall into, um, sort of classic Christian teaching, you know, like what Charlotte does with the homeless mm -hmm. person at the beginning, that's an act of kindness that's very much in line with the teachings of Christ, you know, mm -hmm. um, the, even the sort of the, the very simple thing of like Arvin coming home after the funeral and finding a blueberry pie that's been left anonymously from a neighbor, that's an, a simple act of kindness. And, and, um, and, and so I always felt like because we were looking at religion, we weren't, we weren't sort of um, painting all um, believers as, as crazy people. It was really about... Um, we're looking at people that kind of take things to the extreme, people that have been mm -hmm. traumatized, that don't know how to deal with the absence of God when things get really hard, and then fill that void with their own voice that tells them to do something that's completely um, mental. Uh, and so, um, so, you know, I never felt like, I always, I always felt like that, and it's been interesting because I've been reading people's responses that mm -hmm. are uh, religious and they, they are not offended by the movie. Um, they actually sort of recognize the, 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 the sort of what the balancing act of the movie is, is kind of engaging. 
Um, thank you so much for that for that answer. Um, we're gonna have to wrap up now, but uh, just a, a final question, really, for you. And it's um, it's a really complicated film, but I wanted to ask if what would you like people to take away from it when you when they watch it or when they rewatch it, which we hope they do after this. Oh well, um, I I um, I would like that they leave with a sense of hope. Um, that there is, there is, um, the film is, is exploring this specific kind of generational trauma from one mm -hmm. parent to, to, to their child, but that there, um, that, um, despite that, that there's a, there, there is, there's always a potential to break whatever cycle you, you think you're caught up in. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I, I hope that people have a clear sort of perception of how the dangers of religion and how religion can be manipulated in the wrong hands and how um, certain people abuse their power. Um, uh, and, um, and then I also, I just hope that people can uh, engage in the film um, and, and allow themselves to enjoy the moments that are light, that are warm, that are funny or, or darkly funny. Um, because they are there and they are the reason I think the film ultimately works is because it's not that there is a sort of balancing act that we're playing. I do think that one of the nicest things I've ever filmed is in this movie, which is this simple scene between Willard and Charlotte in the alleyway. Mm -hmm. I think it's like one of the nicest moments I've ever caught on film, this sort of this, what would be considered the meat cute of the movie, you know, is, is just this simple moment where he, uh, he, um, admires an act of kindness that she's just um done and and he and she recognizes the goodness in him and uh and and makes it makes this kind of like stone cold guy kind of um thaw a little bit and so you know i hope that people recognize that and, and appreciate the various layers that are, are are working in this movie um and also just recognize that uh robert pattinson is a mad genius and uh he can do anything. I mean, truly, truly can do anything. Um, Antonio, thank you so much for your time and thank for you, and um, I really talking. appreciate this conversation. Thank you. And thank, thank you, you very much. Thanks to everyone and the directors UK. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.